Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This is a podcast series for authors who had book tours canceled due to COVID-19. Today's guest is the author of Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America. It's what he describes as a memoir told in essays. His name is R. Eric Thomas, and he's one of the funniest people I've had the opportunity to interview. That's no knock to anyone else I've ever talked to. That's just saying how hilarious he is. Like, I can't get over it. This was the second time I was able to talk to him. The first time was via Triangle House's Homebound series that I moderated the nonfiction panel for. And if you haven't heard of Triangle House, please check them out. They're doing amazing things, especially in the time of the coronavirus where we're all stuck at home. They are going to be doing panels. So you'll hear me and Eric talk about that panel. I think it's going to go up online eventually if you missed it so you can watch it. Anyway, here's my conversation with R. Eric Thomas, where he'll be reading from Here For It, his amazing essay collection that I highly, highly, highly recommend you checking out. Hey, Eric, how's it going? I'm doing great. The the panel was great. Um, And yeah, it's so funny, you know, like the the thing that people write in emails, like, it's nice to e-meet you. Like, I just feel like now I'm like, Everyone I've met in the last two weeks, I'm like, I've seen your face on a small screen, and now we are uh, acquainted. Definitely. Um, your book here for it, it's, a, it's essays, it's a, it's a memoir. Um, it came out earlier this month, or did it come out in February? It came out in February. That's right. Yeah, mid-February. Yeah. I read it earlier this month, finally. Um, what is it about, in your own words? Um, it's a collection of humorous essays that... Uh, all look at different positions of being other um, uh, and looking particularly at three different um, forms of identity, the uh, blackness, uh, queerness, and um, being a person of faith and the way that those identities intersect and sometimes come to conflict with each other um, and all under sort of the, like, the general umbrella of like being an American. Like what does it mean to be all these these three things in America right now? And how do I put myself in the center of my own story as opposed to being using existing at the margins uh, of society or at the margins of my own story. Mm-hmm. And part of this, what I'm trying to do is because, you know, we're all cooped up is a, a, a digital reading, if you will. So readers across the country who want to see you on tour weren't actually able to. So what are you going to read today? Uh, I'm going to read uh, the beginning of an essay called the preacher's husband. Um, if I were to write, like, uh, if this was a fiction um, book, uh, I, like, ending it, spoiler alert, um, with me meeting a um, a pastor and falling in love would be a little bit too on the nose, because much of the early part of the book is about trying to find um, a community of faith, um, and while also, like, reckoning with being gay. But it's real life, and so I was like, well, this is what happened. Uh, so I'm going to just read the the beginning of that. The night I met my husband, David, a Presbyterian pastor, I went back to my apartment in a South Philly brownstone, sat on the front steps, and decided that the minute we got engaged, I would announce it on Facebook by changing my profile picture to Whitney Houston in The Preacher's Wife. I saw the future clearly, and apparently, that future was on Facebook. You've got to always be thinking about how you'll turn life events into hashtag content, and it's a known fact that engagements the first baby, some new jobs, winning Big Brother, and photos with celebrities are the gold standards of social media reaction getters. Squandering such gifts is a scandal and a sin. And I wasn't trying to sin because, honey, I was about to marry a preacher. I was going to be Mrs. God or whatever. 
Mary Mandoline? Possible. I was a little unclear on some of the details, like A, how to contact David, B, what male wives of preachers were called, uh, C, what a Presbyterian was, per se, and D, if enough of my friends were familiar with the concept with a complete Whitney Houston film collection for my reference to land. It was a stressful time. Prayers were requested. On the night that we met, David had been on a panel about LGBTQ people of faith alongside representatives from other branches of Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, and Islam. I'd been asked to moderate for reasons that I am still unclear on. I suppose it was for my personality and the fact that I had a standing appointment on my Google calendar that read, go to church, you asshole, which I consistently ignored. In any case, uh, David delighted me so thoroughly that midway through the panel, I stopped talking to all the other panelists and peppered David with personal questions. Please invite me to disrupt all of your events for a small honorarium. Afterward, I mumbled awkward conversational things in David's general direction and tried to fend off someone else who wanted to badger him with long-winded anecdotes disguised as questions. What is a good way to flirt with a pastor, I wondered. And my brain answered, tell him how Christian you are. It's like when you're on a dating profile and you write that your favorite book is Less by Andrew Sean Greer, and then you see someone else who lists Less by Andrew Sean Greer as their favorite book, and you send them an all-caps message that's like, who could imagine two people in this wide, wonderful world would both like this book, which is universally beloved, and won the Pulitzer Prize? We must be soulmates, you and I. Shall I schedule a spring wedding? Except, instead of a comic novel about a late middle-aged gay man's ex existential crisis, the thing I was trying to bond with David over was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was determined to highlight our mutual interest in the niche subject of Protestantism. I love that you read that one. I also love what you read last night on the panel. Um, because as someone, I, I grew up going to Catholic school and Catholic church. Mm -hmm. until I moved across country and the idea of religion is just it, I think about it a lot even though I don't really practice I definitely am not religious now or what have you um, mm -hmm. but someone who's you know LGBTQ and so much of the church has like pushed away from that and the not mm -hmm. every church but what was what was your relationship with religion growing up well I grew up in a um of a Baptist church that was uh, fairly conservative, very conservative. Um, and uh, I loved the church so much, but there was always this, you know, we had a, a, a saying back in, the, in, in that church, uh, you, you'd say, if something didn't sit right with you, you had a check in the spirit. And so I always have like a check in my spirit about the way the church worked, um, because it felt to me like it was strange that women weren't allowed to be in positions positions of leadership. It was strange that like when people we would have and I write about this in the book, we would have these meetings when people uh, when young women would get pregnant and they'd have to like stand in front of the church and like read a letter confessing what they did. And it just felt so uh, uh, gr grim and cruel. Um, and then, you know, as um, as it became clearer that the church was obviously anti-gay and and I started to realize that I was uh, pro-gay, <laughs> um, that uh, I was like, oh, something's not working here. But I like, and so it took a long time to separate the institution from like whatever the spiritual experience was. And it's something I'm still sort of, you know, I, I like marrying a pastor doesn't actually help you to have a better spiritual life. <laughs>
because I go to church, you know, with him now. And uh, it's sort of like watching, it's like, you know, watching your spouse at their job during whatever, you know, like it's like going to watch a, a bank teller count money. Um, and so it is, uh, it's been a really interesting, you know, second half of, of or second part of this, this journey um, uh, that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Everything you write is funny. Um, I honestly... I think humor is the hardest thing to write in the world. Um, And I used to write for a pop culture magazine. I would talk to people who write on sitcoms or wrote on dramas. Mm -hmm. And the general consensus is humor is the hardest thing to write. Mm -hmm. How did you tap in when you first started writing? How did you find out you were funny? Well, that's, oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm trying to think of like the first thing. Oh, you know what? I think, well, one, it was sort of a, uh, a lot of trial and error, but the, one of the first things that I wrote that like I was aware was funny was um, I was a freshman at Columbia and I had, um, I was writing for the school newspaper and I was like already just sort of like so out of my depth in terms of just like being in college and being in New York city. And I went to this French conversation class that was like a level three or whatever. And I'd taken French in high school and I was like, yeah, bonjour, whatever, la la. Um, and, they actually wanted you to like talk in French. And I was so, I was like, Oh no, I don't, this is not how I'm operating this year. Um, and so I wrote about that experience, you know, maybe a month or two into my time at Columbia. And, um, I think it was like the, the pressure of trying to frame this experience that was terrifying to me. Um, but also try to like turning it into something that was, um, uh, that, that was bigger than, than, than just the facts. Um, and sort of like making it farcical, making it, you know, I compared it to, I compared the experience of being in that class to being like at the end of Shirley Jackson's story, the lottery, you know, everyone like turned on me and was like, you don't speak French. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was like the first, that was the first instance where I was like, oh, I can take all this weirdness and discomfort and make it content, you know, we weren't using the word content back then. Um, but I think having an audience really changed my uh, understanding of how to write and how to write funny. When you're writing, is it is it a conscious effort to write funny? Are you like 30 Rock trying to get a joke per page? Or how does that insert itself into your writing now, now that you write like a daily piece? Yeah, I mean, well, with, uh, you know, I write a daily piece on pop culture and um, politics for L.com and... Um, uh, yeah, it, I, I, I run sort of my work like, like I was running like a writer's room. Like I'm I sort of like, I, I evaluate, I look through, I'm on Twitter all day long, which is miserable. Um, and then I like evaluate stories like, okay, is there a joke here? Is there, yes, great. Is there more than one joke? Are there 50 jokes? Are there enough jokes to support a, a premise? But one of the great things about the column and that also carries over, I think, into my essays is that. I am able to sort of take the premise and then go wherever I want with it. So a lot of my columns start off talking about like whatever, Mike Pence or whatever. And then I'm like, anyway, this reminds me of that movie. And like, I can just like talk about the, how I didn't understand plot points in interstellar for 300 words. And people were like, that sounds fun. Um, so yeah, it is, it is, um, I feel like it's, it's not, it's structured, um, free association. And I think that is, um, but yeah, always in the service 
of comedy, whereas at the essays, the comedy is in service of a larger emotional point. So it's structured free association where I'm trying to get using references and jokes to get more close to something that is true and vulnerable mm-hmm. and perhaps harder to say. With these essays, when did you start or when did you want to start telling your life story in a book form? Um, well, I had I started off um, doing storytelling with an organization called First Person Arts, um, uh, which is like a live storytelling show. Um, uh, and and then I, uh, I started w- talk, working with The Moth, um, um, in Philadelphia and then in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And so I think telling stories on stage in these small clubs and, and cafes and, and concert venues uh, convinced me or woke up in me the idea that, like, there was a, a, a there was a larger structure here that um, um, sorry, I'm like totally in my head about saying um, I was doing an interview earlier today and then somebody emailed me and was like, you say um too much. And I was like, I am recording this in my bedroom. Get out of here. Um, so anyway, uh, now I'm conscious. Um, so the, the to- storytelling live really helped to convince me that there was, there were smaller narratives. And then I asked myself, how do I connect these smaller narratives into something larger? Is it uh, a play? Is it a, a one-man show, and I did a couple one-man shows with stories. Um, and then by the time my agent approached me, uh, I guess it was 2017, and she approached me based on like success I'd had with my column. She said, "Do you have a book in you?" And like people, you know, at that point, people were throwing ideas at me, like, "Do you want to write a book on like hashtag resistance? Do you want to write a biography of Maxine Waters? Do you want to write this? Do you want to write that?" And um, the thing that felt most right at that moment was to collect all these stories that I've been working on for 10 years um, and give them uh, more structure and a a larger arc. Earlier, you mentioned how you'll be on Twitter all day looking for content or whatever for L. When do you know something is right for the next day's column or however far in the future you're working? When is something, when, when can you pull something? It is, hmm. Well, the one of the things about the column is that I'm usually only writing, I'm working maybe an hour or two out. Like, uh, like if something happens, like if something were to happen right now, um, I'd want to, I want to get it in by five, you know? Um, and I think one, I'm always trying to make sure that I am punching up. And so there are, you know, there's sometimes celebrities who seem to maybe have, uh, be having mental health crises and, you know, that kind of stuff is not good fodder. Um, and I also, I'm trying to add myself, am I adding more light to the world or am I contributing to darkness? And so I stopped writing about the Trump administration specifically a while back because I'm just sort of like, you know, how many, you can't make the same joke over and over again, like, you know, like whatever that joke might be. So trying to be original, um, and trying to ask myself, I know my audience well enough by now um, that I can sort of intuit what is something that um, most of the people who read me are, you know, they have they have jobs and they're at work and they are sending articles back and forth over group text or whatnot. And so, like, my question often is, is this something that will uh, elevate a stranger's day, you know? Um but yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes from everywhere. One of the things that I really I like actually the most is when my editor sends me a story and it's like, oh, write about this, and I just don't see it, you know, uh, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think so, and that really challenges me to figure out what's funny about this. 
writing the column and then writing these essays that are more personal, not that the column's not, like there's a lot Mm -hmm. of you inside it. How do you approach the two differently or similarly? Uh, I see the column um, as sort of close to being a character. Um, and I, it's it's me, but it's me with the volume turned up and me sassier than I normally am. Um, whereas uh, with the essays, I did get a chance to also turn up my personality a little bit. I, look, the book is funny and it's, you know, I, you know, I'm funny, but I'm not a laugh a minute in person. Um, pretty boring. Um, but the the column is I I feel like the column allows me to be my um my biggest and my most wild self. I my editor, the site director Leia Chernikov, um, who hired me a couple of years ago, described L uh, her vision for L as like being the being like the best brunch you've ever been to uh, with your smartest friends. Um, so there's a little bit of fashion, there's a little bit of celebrity gossip, there's all these things. And so I see myself then sitting at that table and being the person who like has all these weird hot takes and um, is able to crack wise at a minute's notice. And that is, a, that's a great space to be in. Um, it also takes a huge amount of energy. Those kind of people who are like that in real life, I'm like more power to you. Um, but the essays allow me to be just a little bit more calm. It's like a slower rhythm. I'll play agent for a second. Is there ever an idea of turning the column into a book? I, we had, uh, that has come up in conversation a couple of times. One of the things that makes it hard is that it is so in the moment, um, that, uh, I read things that I wrote two years ago and I'm like, what? What is this? What what is that? What happened? Um, and so much of it is, for instance, last week I wrote about these penguins that were walking around the zoo in Chicago because the zoo was closed, and so the penguins got to like have this like arrival moment where they were like, "Look at these whales!" Um, and there were videos embedded in there and gifs, and so like, I guess it is. I I think it it absolutely is possible to turn some of the columns into essays, but they would have to completely, I'd have to deconstruct them and, and put them back together again in, in, in something else. And like, you know, some of them, there's one essay in the book, or there's two maybe, um, where, oh, there's the second essay, the, uh, the Audacity, is a version of that, where I take a column that I wrote about Michelle Obama's speech at the DNC in 2016, and uh, I remove the immediacy, and I put a larger context around it. And then I talk and then I insert, um, a thesis, you know, a lot of times the column doesn't really have a thesis. Um, so it's possible. I, I probably should, you know, I'm like, I gotta make some, I gotta make money somehow. Um, now that we're stuck at home. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> how are you handling COVID-19 personally? And as a writer, are they the oh, same? Um, as a writer, I promised last week I had, so I'm, you know, we're recording this uh, like on my like second week of, of, um, still isolation. And, um, and last week I had all this energy. I was like, I'm going to start a variety show. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write all these plays. I was going to write a, a, like a quarantine soap opera and have some actor friends perform it. And this week I'm just like, I think I will pat myself on the back if I can read for like an hour every night. 
So I think, you know, there was that meme that went around that like Shakespeare wrote King Lear um, during the plague. Um, and like one, Shakespeare didn't have Twitter. So calm down. Number two, I want to give myself a lot of grace um, to not do anything or not be creative because it's going to be baked into every, anything that I write. Um, and I think I have an idea. I've had an idea for a second book of essays for a while. And I think that some things that I'm experiencing right now w give me the the ending for that book that I, I couldn't figure out before. But I have to go through it. So like personally, this is the worst. Like this is like really, it's very scary. Um, and so like I am resisting the urge to turn everything into content right now, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Asicki mentioned last night that he couldn't write his current memoir because he needed space. He needed time away from it. Mm -hmm. Your column is very in the moment. Yeah. For larger projects, do you need that space? Like you just kind of mentioned, you need to live through this, but how much space do you need? I think, you know, I wish I had like an, uh, like, uh, a mathematic equation. I do feel like I, I, I need to, one of the things that became clear about the book was that I couldn't write about anything that I hadn't processed, um, like emotionally and that like, and, and so some things, uh, they were really immediate, you know, and I was like, great, I, I got that. I moved it on. And some things it took the 20 years that it, that it took. So I wonder, you know, about this period. And I think, you know, one of the things about this particular moment is that like, we are still going up the going up the uh, the steep side of the mountain, um, and so I, we don't know what's on top of the mountain. And um, I do need. I was stunned. You know, Paul talked about like starting um, starting what would become later in 1997, but I, I also totally understand that. You know, like sometimes you need 20 years to figure out um, this is what I was feeling, and the online cycle. Um, you know, will convince us all that we have, we've, we've got it. We've got the bead right now. Um, and so there is something really admirable. I think about someone who's able to say, I don't think that, I don't think I, I know the story yet. Um, and I'm going to wait until I do. Another thing not to bring up last night, but I really loved it. Samantha brought up that she hates her writing. And then you kind of mm -hmm. mentioned that with your column where it's like, you read something two years ago and you know, you're not really sure how to connect with it. Um, how do you feel because you write so much, mm -hmm. do you revisit it often just for any reason in particular? Um, not really. Um, one, because I, I do find that my approach to comedy is, uh, changing really rapidly over, um, over the course of the columns. I think that I'm getting better some of the co the early columns i didn't know what i was doing and that was really helpful because i was able to just sort of like go nuts um and write whatever i wanted to write uh which is great that's a great freedom but um from like a like a craft point of view i was like i don't know these are a little bit of a mess um and uh not a mess but they were some of the some of them were a little wilder than I think I like, I'm like, Oh, the internet is reading this. You can't say anything you want. Um, so yeah, I, but I, I, but there are some that I go back and I'm like, you, I, I have to admit, I'm like, you killed it. This was great. Uh, there's one I wrote about Aretha Franklin had this feud with Dionne Warwick that she restarted 
20 years after it supposedly ended by sending a fax um, to the Associated Press about Dionne Warwick. And it's just such a strange story. And so that was like two or three years ago, obviously before Aretha Franklin passed away. And uh, that's like, I, I, I go back and read that one all the time. I'm like, this is wild. This is a wild story. And um, I, think I, I think I wrote about it well. I usually end these by asking what uh, writers are reading, but because you deal so much with pop culture and current events, I'll ask a few questions. Um, what's one thing that you're watching that you love right now? Um, hmm, well, it's not new, unfortunately, but uh, I just rewatched the second season of Fleabag. Uh, my husband hadn't seen it. And it's just, it's so good. It's so smart. The first season is good. It's interesting because we watched the first season last week and the second season this week. And we were both stunned. I was like, oh, the first season's good, fine. Second season is brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I'm really loving that. I understand going back and watching all the things that you love. Um, I'm I'm rewatching RuPaul's Drag Race season nine, which is just a very specific (laughs) season that I happen to love. And there's something comforting in going back and revisiting something right now in this specific period of time. Oh, absolutely. Um, what's, What's one Twitter account that you feel people need to follow since you're on it all day? Sorry to put oh, you on the spot. No, I mean, well, the first, I'll just go with my first thought. It's Kristen Arnett's uh, feed. Is, <laughs> she's just so good. I mean, you know, and I'm sure listeners of De Beautiful already follow Kristen. I'm going to pull up the um, the handle. Um, but, uh, of course, I can't type. But, yeah, she's, like, sometimes you think, oh, it's just Kristen um, underscore Arnett with two Ts. Um, sometimes, like, I'm like, and she's just like so good at playing a character um, because she's so consistent. And I'm like, no, this is who she is. She's funny. She likes beer. She's sardonic. Um, and she she commits to a bit. And uh, it's it's one of the most genuine um, and delightful experiences um, that I have online is, is following her. Mm-hmm. Are there any podcasts that are must listens for you in your household? Yeah, I really like uh, Still Processing um, by uh, from the New York Times. Uh, it's two culture writers, um, um, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris. Wesley Morris, uh, both of them, anytime they write about anything, I'm like, oh, man, I'm about to get my brain broken open. Um, and they do that same thing, um, the, the same thing they do in their writing, they do on air. So I really like that. I really like the Marish Review. Um, uh, what else is a must listen? Every time I listen to Invisibilia, I end up like spiraling. Um, but, but it is good. Um and Reply All is really great, mm-hmm. too. And then two more. Uh, what about music? What what do you love to listen to? Oh, I have, you know, I have such, like, old gay men and a caftan music taste. Like, I'm just like, I don't know who is coming up, but I did enjoy this uh, recording of Anything Goes from 1987. <laughs> um, so, hey, that's fair. I mean, like, I love musical theater. I uh, So I'm, a, like, a big musical theater fan. I just discovered this one artist, Emily King, I believe. Um, yeah, Emily King, she, there's a couple of dancers, um, one of whom was in uh, the movie Cats, who I follow on um, Instagram, and they have been dancing on the roof while, um, while quarantined, and they've been dancing to Emily King. And she just has a really uh, beautiful, um, uh, I don't, I have no words to describe um, music, unfortunately, but I highly, <laughs> highly recommend her. And then finally, what books can you recommend? Um, so I am midway through Under the Rainbow mm-hmm. by uh, C.L. Eliaski. I recommended this last night um, about a town that's uh, deemed the most homophobic in the U.S. and a nonprofit that sends a team to go 
uh, like a, a sort of queer missionary team to go fix it. Um, so uh, that is an absolute delight. Um, I just finished The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Um, I love Colson Whitehead. Uh, I liked Underground Railroad more than Nickel Boys, but um, yeah, that, it was. it's just, he's amazing. We are so gifted to have, we're so lucky to have uh, him. Uh, what else am I reading? I'm looking at my pile here. Um, oh, well, this book is not come. It's not out until June or July. But the Brightlands by John Fram. Uh, it's like it's like Stephen King, um, with like a a queer bent. It's like super creepy. Um, and uh, and Southern Gothic is really the thing. Um, uh, so that's really great. Um, yeah, those are. I'm looking forward to getting getting into uh, Drive uh, Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. I've not started that yet, but I got my uh, uh, my local bookseller, Grady Reads, recommended it really highly, so I'm looking forward to that. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, you are a delight. I just have to say oh, that. Thank you. Like last <laughs> night, I mean, I knew you were, I knew you would be, but last night and today, it's just like, I feel like people who don't somehow know you need to just become your number one fan. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. You didn't say um too much. I said um a lot more, just so you know. I okay. I was hoping I would see the knives out sweater, but I understand. <laughs> it's a little warmer here today. I'm sorry. I'll like I'll send you a picture. <laughs> totally fine. Have a great day. Um I, I love reading you. I can't wait to see what you come out with every day that I, that you publish something. Thanks so much. Have a great day, you too. Bye, have a good one. Bye. Thank you to R. Eric Thomas for coming on today's podcast. You can check out his daily humor column, Eric Reads the News, every day, every weekday at L.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at rericthomas.substack.com. His website is rericthomas.com. He's on Twitter and Instagram at reric, but that's O-U-R, like he's ours. Please check out Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net on all the social media handles at daybeautiful. Like always, be safe out there. Register to vote if you haven't. Vote in your primaries if you haven't voted yet. And then please, 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 please vote this November. Everyone stay safe out there. Until next time.